You're listening to The Mumbrella Cast. The Mumbrella Cast. Welcome to The Mumbrella Cast. I'm Damien Francis. On this week's Tuesday episode, I'm joined by Chief Marketing and Technology Officer for Koala, Peter Sloterdijk. Peter made headlines in the Australian market early last year when he moved from his US-based high-profile role as Head of Original Series Marketing at Netflix to join one of Australia's most talked-about startup brands. It hasn't all gone to plan, though, with the pandemic meaning he is still Denver-based, having not been able to make the move to Australia. But despite this, he's pushing on with some big marketing plans and spending plenty of time on the technology part of his role as well. He speaks with me now. Peter Sloterdijk, CMO of Koala, thank you for joining me on the Mumbrella Cast. Of course, thank you for having me. Now, we're recording these podcasts more and more in person. Unfortunately, we're not recording this one in person. You're not even in the same city or country as I am. I at wish the I moment. was. <laughs> <laughs> I wish you were too. Where are you, Peter? Tell me a bit about the situation at the moment. Yes, indeed. I'm just a, a little bit outside of Denver, Colorado. Um, we're in a town called Evergreen. Uh, lucky enough to be enjoying uh, a life in the mountains when we weren't able to do a life in Sydney. Uh, my husband and I were supposed to move back at the beginning of the pandemic. Obviously, the Australian borders are very closed, um, and it sounds like they're going to be closed to the middle of 2022. Um, so in the meantime, I shall do a, a bit of an odd schedule working Sydney hours from the States. Now, of course, you were meant to be coming to Mumbrella 360 as well, probably the least of your concerns in, in the overall scheme of things, let's be honest about it. Uh, but how are you dealing with this, uh, you know, leading a, a big team so far away, completely different time zone? You were just telling me before it's 10 p.m. where you are at, at the moment. That's a, that's a pretty big challenge. It is a challenge. Um, listen, I, I'm very grateful for technology um, overall. Uh, it, it certainly has made it more possible uh, for something like this to work. Um, it is not ideal by any means, but I'm very fortunate to have a really incredible group of leaders uh, that I get to work with that are on the ground, and some of them are, are also remote. Um, and we found a, a really um, valuable way of working uh, in this remote capacity. Um, I'm always a little bit jealous of the team when they're in the conference room together and I'm the only one on the screen. But overall, um, I, I'm still really privileged to be able to work with a, a group of really incredible people that, um, lucky for me, don't need me on the ground. Uh, it must be a really fascinating sort of situation for you. Koala is one of the brands in Australia that a lot of marketers keep a, a close eye on. They're doing some really interesting things, uh, some very creative work, uh, selling a lot of product. Mm -hmm. You're essentially one of the leadership team who, and correct me if I'm wrong, has never actually been into the office in, in Australia. Indeed. So a little correction there. I did have the opportunity to be on the ground for six weeks uh, back in October and November, um, which was a great privilege. Um, I wasn't able to stay in the States, even though I wanted, or sorry, stay in Australia, even though I wanted to. Um, but I have had the, ch the chance to be on the ground outside of those six weeks. No, um, I have not been there. I am the only member of the leadership team that uh, has not had the chance to spend more time in the office. Well, I'm sure they're looking forward to you spending more time in the office. I'm sure you are looking forward to, to doing soon. that as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Um, 
Look, I'd love to go all the way back to to the start, really, and actually uh, ask you what ended up getting you across the line to Koala. For those uh, who don't know, the listeners of the Mumbrella cast who, who don't know, you've had a, a, a pretty big career, you know, uh, at uh, at uh, Grinder as the CMO and, and then at uh, Netflix uh, as well uh, in a very senior marketing role over there. What led you to decide that your next move was going to be to an Australian startup furniture brand? <laughs> it is a bit of an odd jump, isn't it? Um, listen, I have had, um, I, I'm really grateful for my career. Um, I've had the chance to work with some really amazing brands, um, work in some incredible environments. Uh, Netflix will always be a huge highlight um, of my career where I feel like I really learned how to lead a team, really how to be a, a member of an incredibly high-performing organization. Um, I think at Grinder, I had the chance to build from the ground up, and I'm really proud of what we accomplished there in a very short period of time. Um, in the opportunity at Koala, um, you know, Koala is an always-growing brand. We're really lucky to be an always-growing uh, company, and the chance to come to Australia, which of course hasn't been realized yet, but the, the chance to come to Australia to take my experience and bring it to bear in building what is going to be a an incredible global direct-to-consumer furniture brand uh, was too attractive to say no to. Um, what we are doing at Koala is exciting. It's challenging. It's insane every day. Um, I, I guess I feel a little bit fortunate in my weird schedule when I work 3 p.m. to 2 a.m., that I get the chance to actually have a day um, during the day where, where you're all sleeping and I kind of get to enjoy um, a, a bit of normalcy because um, it gives me the chance to catch up on everything because there's always so much going on and we're really lucky um, to have that opportunity in front of us. So that chance um, to build, to grow with the organization, um, to continue to build what I think is going to be a global powerhouse brand um, is was too attractive to say no to. Um, and e even given my experience at Netflix and how wonderful it was, I certainly left um, wanting more, but knowing that the opportunity at Koala was going to be um, going to be incredible. Were you approached by Koala or did you seek them out? Did you even know about them when they approached you? <laughs> I did not know about Koala when they approached me. Um, weirdly, I hadn't kept an eye on Koala and Japanese uh, furniture brands. I know that seems strange, Funny, but though. living in the States, yeah, <laughs> it wasn't quite relevant to me. Um, no, uh, Danny and Mitch reached out um, and they, they sought me out, which was a, a great compliment. Um, and I have a longstanding rule in my career of I never say no to the phone call, ever. Um, cause it's always an opportunity to learn about something new, um, maybe to connect someone in my network, even if it isn't a perfect role for me. Um, so I, I never say no to the phone call and, uh, that, you know, proved to, to really bear out here, uh, in the opportunity with Koala. Now tell me, what does a, a senior marketer with experience at, at Grindr and Netflix bring to the table to Koala? Cause they're very different businesses. Uh, what's the mix there? They are very different businesses. So, I mean, those of us who work in marketing and advertising are, you know, happy to sing the praises of the uh, malleability and the flexibility of what we do. We can kind of apply our skill sets to almost any business, uh, but there is value in vertical or industry experience. Um, and I'm happy to acknowledge that I don't have furniture direct to consumer experience. But what I do have is uh, experience building a brand, um, growing a business, working globally, uh, figuring out what the scale and organization 
needs to be in order to function um, in a multi-country way and uh, where the head office is, is required, where they are not, where we need to set up country autonomy, et cetera. Um, and what's been so incredible about the opportunity at Koala is the chance to bring all that to bear while I'm learning a new industry. Um, and I think, you know, Mitch and Danny, the, the founders have been so gracious with me um, to allow me to learn um, in that experience and to continue, continue to grow in my own way um, and learn so much about e-commerce. And, you know, certainly at Netflix and Grindr, um, it is a direct-to-consumer business in one way, um, but not with a physical product. So that's a whole new world to me. Um, and I was so grateful to be on the ground in October and November because I finally got to feel, touch, and experience our product, um, which was a really important piece of the puzzle for me. Um, so anyway, with all of that, I think uh, applying my skill set hasn't been a challenge. Applying my experience hasn't been a challenge. Uh, but the challenge of learning the nuance of our particular business um, has been a great grow growth experience for me. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. I, I guess as well, the nuance then of, of marketing uh, essentially an Australian product of course, Koala is in the Japanese yes. market now as well. Very, yep. very different market. Uh, very. The Australian market always sort of looks to the UK, Europe, mm. the US in terms mm -hmm. of what's happening over there. They're, they're sort of leading. They're a few steps ahead. The technology's a bit different. The, the market's a lot bigger. The money's a lot bigger as well. Mm. You know, you've sort of gone the other way around here, mm. you know, especially from very large brands with, I, I assume, very big expenditure. How has that been for you, you know, joining an Australian team who's used to marketing in the Australian uh, in, in, industry to Australian consumers? And I'm, I'm guessing with Australian-sized budgets. Uh, we are working with smaller budgets, but it's a smaller country, and so the dollars go further, right? Um, then U.S. budgets or, or North American budgets, you could say, or even European to some degree. Um, what I find has been so gratifying about my experience from Grinder on, um, and what I've learned as a leader, especially as a as a marketing leader, uh, is that my role is to listen more than I speak. My role is to absorb and take in information and then make decisions or make recommendations. And I think that is never more true than in my, you know, my uh, experience at Koala. Um, I am not an Australian. I am a dumb American that has come into this country and, and leading what is a, a hopefully an iconic Australian brand that Mitch and Danny have built. Um, and I, I recognize the privilege associated with that. And so I have tried, I don't know that I've always been successful, but I have tried to listen more than I speak when it comes to learning the Australian culture, learning what works in Australia, what doesn't work in Australia. But on the flip side, I've also had the chance to push, to perhaps level up or um, add some expertise to the table um, and bring things forward a little bit, hopefully moving Koala forward um, in a way that is relevant for the Australian market, re relevant for the Japanese market, um, and gives me a chance to uh, bring that expertise to bear inside of Koala. Um, but it's a healthy tension, um, right? It, it's a healthy tension that allows us to hopefully get the best product in the, in the outcome. I'd love to get your thoughts on on Koala as a brand when you joined and particularly the the marketing mm. campaigns and the brand purpose, I, I guess, because 
Koala was and is still under your marketing leadership known as a bit of an edgy company, mm. tries some pretty interesting marketing tactics. I remember on Mumbrella, we covered uh, in one of our sort of uh, more funny sections, the Dr. Mumbo section, the um, advertorial yep. that was on the, the Today Show uh, that Koala <laughs> produced. I think that was a little bit before your time, but um, yep. you obviously would have had a look at all of that and, and seen the style of marketing that Koala mm-hmm. has done. And you, you've carried that on in a sense. I've um, tried to. Yeah. What What did you think about that and, and why do you think it's important that Koala positions itself like mm-hmm. that? Yeah. It's interesting. So as far as an outsider, before I joined the brand, um, and in doing my research, et cetera, lots of Mumbrella articles. Thank you. Um, in doing my research there, uh, what I saw was the perfect version of a startup brand, right? Reaching out to that millennial audience that's ready to make quick decisions, that's interested in e-commerce and DTC experiences, that's interested in the taking out the middleman and exactly what our business model was built for. Um, and the edgy Australian sarcasm, kind of taking the piss out of ourselves or others and having a blast with it, um, was an incredible introduction for the brand. And, and I, I can take almost no credit for any of the great things that people will talk about because Mitch and Danny and the rest of the teams that were in place then uh, took every risk possible. And the beauty of being a new brand is that you have the ability to take incredible risks. What is interesting about uh, when I joined Koala, so a year and a half, almost a year and a half ago, um, we have a new challenge in front of us, which is to reach a broader new audience that hasn't necessarily been introduced to Koala in a relevant way. The reason that I use the word relevancy is because I don't ever, ever want to lose the edge, the joy, the humor, um, the pure Australiana of the Koala tone of voice. I don't. But we have to find and strike the appropriate balance. And this is the part that I'm always kind of challenging my team and challenging myself with, um, is striking that balance so that we don't turn off customers that think, oh, that couldn't possibly be for me because of our tone of voice or because of the way that we do a lot of our marketing. So I think you've seen in the year and a half that I've been here, um, a slight maturing of the brand, a slight broadening of the brand, maybe taking even just a smidge of the edge off so that we can be a bit more broad in who we're reaching and, and how we're connecting with folks. We're also, of course, leveraging on the digital side of things, that's kind of talking about above the line, but on the digital side of things, leveraging extreme targeting so that we are taking advantage of tailored messaging for the right audience. And again, not losing that edge um, for the audience that it resonates with. Yeah, I've experienced that uh, having done a little bit of research just this morning to to put the finishing touches sure. on, on the questions. <laughs> Everything in, in my feeds of all types is, is koala now. A disclaimer, I've already got a koala mattress, so I'm, Fantastic. I'm good. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, Appreciate but that. But tell me, how does uh, – <laughs> you're welcome. How does that um, – I guess, how does that maturity broaden your horizons? Can you tell me a little bit more about that? What what makes you believe that that's important to to expanding those horizons for, for the brand? So as we expand beyond our current offering, so most folks in Australia know us as, an, as a mattress brand. And 
our mattress is incredible. And we've got more incredible products on offer that are a little less known. And so that broadening of our message, that maturing of the brand is to bring those new customers in that know us only as an Australian mattress brand and bringing them in and letting us know, letting them know that we have incredible sofas, we've got incredible chairs, we have fantastic entire bedroom sets, linens, so on and so forth. A whole new office range that honestly, I'm jealous I don't have here. I wish we shipped to the US because the office range is fantastic. I'm sure they can get a um, container load to you, surely. Yeah, stay, stay tuned. I know we're, we're like slowly filling the container. Uh, my husband is none too excited about the giant container of quality furniture that's coming <laughs> because he doesn't know what to do with it all. Um, but uh, I think, you know, what's really exciting for me is that there's so much more to discover at Koala. So that broadening and maturing of the message of the way that we communicate with folks, getting a little bit more mass, which isn't intended to be a negative thing, uh, but getting a little bit more mass, still finding our way to cut through, still using our tone of voice to get people's attention and to bring them into the Koala environment in order to introduce them to everything else that we have on offer. Um, right now we have the, you know, the top rated sofa in Australia and that's still a bit of a quiet message. So we've got some work to do um, to convince folks that there's more on offer. Now you, you talked about that, that maturity, you talked about a bit of the, the above the line stuff as well. I'd love to uh, talk to you about how that broadening might be broadening your marketing channels uh, as well and mm. your strategy mm -hmm. uh, as well. Like you've just said, you know, it's, uh, highly targeted digital is obviously still a, a key component of, of your marketing strategy. And it always will be. Yep. And always will be, absolutely. Uh, yeah. I, I assume very important for a, a, D, a DTC brand. But uh, yeah, what else are you doing now to, to broaden that market share? So what's interesting um, for me about our channel mix um, is that even what I inherited, the only thing that was really missing from our channel mix uh, that I inherited was print and television. Um, we have always done a ton with radio, a lot um, with experiential, doing pop-up shops and that sort of thing. Um, but print and TV have always been sort of on the left side, um, kind of every once in a while, maybe an opportunistic moment, um, but not a ton that we would do there. Um, we still haven't done a ton of print, but we are looking at that going into FY22 um, and knowing that there's a, a whole nother opportunity for us on print. What we're trying to figure out um, from our point of view is the sustainability aspect of print. Um, sustainability is a huge thing for our business and it informs all of our decisions. Um, and so it's something we're always striving towards. I don't know that we will ever reach 100% sustainability because there's always more that we can do. Um, and so knowing that that kind of road in front of us is quite long, I think print for me has always been um, a question mark because can we find a way to do it sustainably? Can we find a way that connects with the brand appropriately and also delivers the message? But I never demean the effectiveness of print. I know how effective it is in the market and believe quite wholly in its effectiveness um, for consumers. So what you'll see um, over the last year or so is that we've definitely started taking advantage of TV more, but our mix has remained. We continue to take advantage of radio, of television, out of home, etc. Um, those pieces of the puzzle will always be there for us. And I, I've certainly said it in other um, conversations with um, other media outlets and trade media, uh, Omnichannel is the only way forward as, as far as I am concerned. Um, there is no single channel 
approach that is as effective as an omni-channel approach. Um, I just feel very strongly about that. So whether that you know, across the POE spectrum, paid, owned, and earned, um, every piece of the puzzle is required to to put your best foot forward. Absolutely. I'd love to pick your brains a little bit more on, on the print side just before Please. moving on in, in terms of, you know, it's probably very easy for, for us as, as trade media uh, and, and for others as well to, you know, give print a, a hard time. I, I come from a, a, a print background. Um, Indeed. But- Tell me why you feel there's you know, there's still value in print as a marketing channel. So in my career, I've had the opportunity to do some pretty large-scale testing um, across every channel. Um, and a lot of that continues to inform my decision-making today about, about channel mix. And what I have found through a lot of that testing is that uh, print – even if circulation is dwindling, even if um, the exposure isn't quite as great, et cetera, as some other channels, print is still a really effective medium to drive awareness, to convey a message. And what I, you know, you, you think about some of the the print stunts that we've seen, uh, you know, the Supremes Takeover being one of my uh, favorite, it's not terribly recent now, but it's still stuck in my head as one of, one of my favorite kind of takeovers. And that was a hardcore print execution that drove insane earned media. So even just that um, as a concept, I I couldn't even begin to imagine how much earned media they got out of that particular paid execution. Um, And so that kind of continues to inform my belief that there is a great deal of value in print. um, This was the the wraparound of the newspaper, wasn't it? Yes. Yep. In New York Times, I, which I think sold out Times, so okay. quickly as well, in two seconds, and and it drove a real kind of revolution for Supreme. It didn't last as long as maybe they wanted it to, but I think it drove a revolution and a lot of conversation around that brand that just didn't exist before. Um, and I think you know that was a print execution, kind of wholly and 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 uh, in, entirely. So. It's just an example of, I think it with the right creative, with the right idea, um, there is something in print that can be really compelling. Now, I'd love to move on to the the sales channels as well, now that we've had a, a bit of a discussion sure. about the marketing channels. Obviously, Koala, direct-to-consumer brand. Um, how... How will that continue moving forward? Will it continue moving forward? Is there a ceiling, I guess, is what I'm asking, to mm. direct to, to consumer that, that you hit at some stage? Um, or is it just ever expanding? The pandemic showed us that the ceiling has yet to be identified. And what I find really interesting about that is there was a whole new, and I I cannot wait for the kind of more concrete research that comes out after the pandemic, Um, but there's a whole new group of humans that never imagined they would ever buy anything online from groceries to furniture, to a computer, to a TV, Um, all of which they went and bought online. And now their entire consumer behavior has changed. And so we did this five-year leap in six months in terms of e-commerce growth. And it's pretty incredible to to see. Now, 
anyone's guess in terms of how long that stays and does that mean we see slower growth going forward? I don't think so. I think it actually accelerated growth in a pretty permanent way. Uh, but the ceiling for direct-to-consumer and e-commerce in particular has yet to be identified. So I do believe it will continue. I believe that we have a lot of growth in front of us and I don't think we're alone um, in that growth. And I, you know, certainly with some of the publicly uh, listed companies, you can you're seeing in their reporting that they experienced a great we're calling it the COVID bubble, right? A great COVID bubble, COVID boost um, that is going to stick around for a little while. Now there will be some fluctuations in the market as things start to steady out, as people go return to our new version of normal and whatever that looks like. As soon as Melbourne gets out of lockdown and we stop having to talk about lockdown and all of that jazz, it will be. A, a sort of resetting. So there will be some dips, there will be some peaks, some troughs, etc., cetera, uh, that we'll get through. But that's also retail. That is e-commerce. That happens in a completely normal world, let alone one that's been transformed this way uh, it, it, as it has been through the pandemic. So I do believe that there's an incredible opportunity in front of us um, and that that opportunity is um, unsized just yet. So how do you use that then to strategize future moves when the the consumer is shifting so rapidly the environment is shifting so rapidly and you're trying to expand at the same time to a, a broader market how does that affect what you are, are doing moving forward so i have a pretty um, loud mantra and i think you've heard it before in some other conversations um, that i've had measure what you can and believe in what you can't. And, and the reason that I say it that way, and, and there's a couple different versions of that particular statement, but the reason that I say it that way is that predictive modeling and data-informed decision-making, uh, exceptional measurement across the board, all of that is fantastic. And it allows us all to be better at what we do. But there is a limit to it. We still can't really measure PR. We still can't really measure above the line in any true meaningful way. And that's okay, because we all know that there's incredible value in PR and there's incredible value in above-the-line marketing. And so you believe in the things that you know work, even if you can't measure them or prove them empirically to your board or investors or your company or whatever you need to do. I feel really strongly about that. So in terms of your question about like how do you strategize, how does that inform what we're doing going forward, we take in the information that is available to us. We make the best possible plans that we can. And then we add what I like to call just a dash of special sauce, which is that gut instinct um, that allows us to push even a little bit further, to set the goal a little bit higher, um, to make sure that we are pushing ourselves towards a little bit of that unknown or unsized opportunity in front of us um, and really going after the best prize we can find. Have marketers lost a bit of that uh, reliance or belief in gut instinct as we've shifted towards big conversations on ROI and big data and, and all that sort of stuff? Yes, absolutely we have um, as, a, as a community. I think um, every conversation I have with a non-marketing executive is about ROI measurement it's about um, driving an understanding of the value of what we're doing. And I find it so difficult um, to help folks understand my mantra about measure what you can and believe in what you can't. Um, because 
that seems almost an unacceptable vibe to a lot of folks, right? Trying to tell a CFO, I'm as a side note, I'm very lucky with my CFO, who's an incredible partner. Um, so it's it's not necessarily a challenge with her, but telling a CFO out in the world, um, hey, I can't measure that, but I'm gonna go spend a couple million bucks on it. Gosh, that's a hard conversation, right? That is a really difficult thing. But what I have found is that the only way you can get to the other side of that conversation is by building extreme trust. And that trust is a two-way street, right? You've got to trust your partners that don't understand what you're doing. They've got to trust you. And then in addition to that trust, it's the expectation that we can all acknowledge failure and that it's okay to acknowledge failure. My 15 years of experience, well, oh God, that number's not right anymore, but we'll go with it. My 15 years of experience um, inching towards making decisions about multi-million dollar spends, right? That has weight. It does have weight, but I still have to then acknowledge, hey guys, I messed up. I, I knew in my heart that that was going to be the right thing to do, and it did not give us the result that I was hoping. I took a risk for the business. I made the wrong decision, but here's what I've learned about it. Here's how that's going to inform my decision-making going forward, et cetera. If we can all get a little bit more comfortable with the concept of failure, both non-marketing executives and uh, marketing executives, and we can get a little bit more comfortable with admitting the failure and acknowledging what we've learned around it, I think that trust becomes unbreakable. I think that trust becomes so, so, so real. But what we as marketers, and I'm guilty of this too, we tend to oversell, right? We tend to polish up that beautiful failure and go, well, here's the 93 things about it that were great. And here's the seven that kind of failed or whatever. But the reality is, is that we just need to leave the 93 to the side for the moment and say, here are the seven things that didn't work. And, and, and here's why I'm going to learn from those going forward. Now, really much easier said than done, but I believe wholeheartedly in that approach. Look, I wanted to use that question as well as a bit of a, a, a bridge between your role in technology at Koala mm. as well. It's been documented a, a bit that you oversee that side of the business as, as well, yes. which is seriously unique um, <laughs> from a marketing perspective. It's a bit strange. Yes. <laughs> you know, your word was straight. I said unique. But, uh, look, I'll take is, either. Hey, it, it is a little bit uh, strange. We don't hear about that often at all. Um, you know, we talk a lot about MarTech and we talk a lot about marketers struggling with the immense amount of options and the depth that they can go into when it comes to Absolutely. technology um, and actually finding ways to relate to and talk to people involved in technology and, and building and developers and, and people like that. But here you are actually leading this team. How did that come about and how is it working? It's an unremarkable story on how it came about, um, only insofar as um, I have had the, the privilege of working with some really incredible technology teams throughout my career. The technology team on the agencies that I worked in, um, certainly at Grindr and understanding app development. The beauty of working in an environment like Grindr, which is sort of a, a fast, fast moving startup, or it was at the time, um, is that everybody does everything, right? So I was I needed to know just as much about app development and engineering and product UX, UI and design, et cetera, as I did about marketing because they were kind of one and the same uh, in the context of that app environment. Ditto at Netflix, right? 
there was nothing that I could do from a marketing perspective without involving my technology partners and having a deep understanding of what they were doing. Now, with all of that deep understanding and partnership and exposure, et cetera, I'm still not a developer. I'm still not an engineer. I am not a product UX, UI expert, et cetera. But what I am is capable of leading a team. And so there was this beautiful opportunity inside of Koala where, as is the truth for a lot of companies, but certainly in the context of an e-commerce brand, technology can't exist without marketing and marketing cannot exist without technology. And inevitably, there's always a little bit of tension between mar mar marketing and technology teams um, because there's sort of a deep misunderstanding of what each other do and why we're doing it and where the prioritization comes in, et cetera. And so we at Koala took the opportunity um, when we had the chance to unify the two teams. Now, I'll go back to what I said at the beginning, which makes my remote role possible. I have an incredible group of leaders that are really, really good at what they do. Some of the very best in the world at what they do. And so that's very true for my technology team. Um, I've got engineering, product, UX, UI, uh, product management, um, design, content management, et cetera, all in the context of the technology team led by an incredible person named Jeff. And Jeff educates me every day. So do each of his leaders that lead each of the teams. Um, and they allow me the chance to say, guys, I don't know what you're talking about. Can you please explain it to me? But what then I'm able to add to the, to the table is help with prioritization, understanding what the macro level needs of the business are, right? So we're in the middle of this huge digital transformation project. We are redesigning everything literally everything from the ground up and everything from our e-commerce platform to our um our code stack sorry our um, tech stack and our code base um all of the pieces of the puzzle we are redoing and it has been the most incredible education for me i knew we needed to do it but i had no idea how to implement it i needed my team to teach me how to implement this and what it was going to be so going back to the, I, I got off track a little bit, but going back to your original question, um, the beauty of, of, of this role that is, you're right, extremely unique in the, in the market is that I get the chance to dispel any of what I will kindly term as bullshit between marketing and technology. Um, and we've got these incredible partnerships across the board that are working really, really well because my leadership team is built up of technologists and marketers. Um, and so we are always working together to solve whatever problem is in front of us. Um, so I wonder if we might see more of this in the future in more companies, uh, because it is possible. I've really enjoyed it. I do think that at some point as we continue to grow, et cetera, that we might need more technology leadership. Bring it on. That's awesome. Like I, I think that could be great. Um, so I'm not. There's no kind of territorial issues there, uh, but it has been a privilege in the meantime. Look, you've, you've kind of stolen my next question, but I, Sorry. I'll ask it anyway. Which was, you know, do do you think, you know, you posed the question yourself, but do you yep. think we should see more marketers taking mm. on these roles or or being more involved at least in in the technology teams within the companies they work for? So listen, um, there have been countless articles and interviews and discussions over the last probably two or three years about the role of a CMO. Ten years ago, the CMO was creative, brand strategy, and media, and that's and that's it. That that is, a, you know, it was a very 
narrow remit in terms of what they were responsible for. CMOs today in most companies are responsible for broad swaths of the company, product, data, technology, brand strategy, media, creative, so on and so forth. And it, it all obviously depends on the business that you're talking about, but CMOs today are responsible for a lot more than they ever were and than is ever really recognized in their title um, and, and kind of what's included in that in that CMO title. So not only do I think we should see more of it, but I think we will see more of it. And I expect that the, that the same is true for CTOs, especially in this digitally driven world. CTOs are marketers, right? They are creating consumer-facing products, websites, apps, um, VR, AR, so on and so forth, they are creating consumer-facing products that are marketing. And that's not a demeaning statement, right? They are operating as marketing tools, which is where that kind of necessary partnership across marketing and technology, creative and technology, so on and so forth, comes into play. So I expect that we will see more CMOs that are responsible for larger portions of the company, larger, um, broader responsibilities, I should say. And I think we'll see the same for CTOs and chief product officers that continue to grow in their roles and depending on the company, et cetera, take over more responsibility um, across the board. Um, changing tack just a, a little bit, because I'd love to get this question in but before we have to wind up. I'm sure it's getting towards sure. like 3 a.m. your time now. <laughs> no worries. Like that. Um, we've talked a lot recently about sustainability and brand purpose and of course mm. koala um it's a big part of the brand particularly the sustainability uh it is. you know I, I remember when we we got our koala mattress getting the, the, the little koala that came with the box and and the the documentation and the that, message and yep mm-hmm. absolutely all all the the content that that came with it um and it told a, a really nice story i think what we're as an industry struggling with at the moment is actually, you know, what brand purpose is and its importance to Mm. the brand and the importance of aligning with a purpose. But then also the discussion about what does that actually do for a brand? Do you see Mm. anything come out of it? What's the value of aligning a brand with a, a purpose? So I'd love to get your uh, perspective on what that alignment does for Koala. I am quite confident that I did not invent this, but I think about it as the three A's of brand. Uh, brand affinity, brand awareness, and brand advocacy. So when your brand stands for something, when it has a purpose, a belief system um, that is clearly understood by your customers and your consumers, it helps every piece of your business. And I firmly believe that. Word of mouth, advocacy when there's a crisis or you mess up or there's a mistake made and people are willing to come to your aid, so much more valuable um, than anything else a brand can do themselves to correct the behavior, correct the mistake. Um, So advocacy, affinity, and awareness are are the objectives of having a brand purpose. They are the, per- they are the reason um, behind having that brand strategy that is so clearly understood by your consumers. But it is also the hardest thing for any of us to do. And the, I think one of the reasons it's the hardest thing is because it requires significant investment. It, it is not free. It almost always requires um, a lot of dollars behind the effort. 
and narrowing down what you stand for, believe in, what you're willing to go to bat for, narrowing that down or distilling it into a consumer-facing message when we have about three and a half seconds of their attention um, is a nearly impossible feat. We will all continue to try and do it. Um, but that's where I think, you know, kind of going back to some other parts of our conversation, there's a huge importance for me on, on customer research, on w- whether you want to call it a brand tracker or ongoing um, sentiment analysis, et cetera. Those pieces of the puzzle are so important to be able to convey the value and the importance of a brand effort, a brand purpose, a brand message, a brand campaign, whatever it might be. Because if you can show the uptick in awareness, the uptick in affinity, the uptick in advocacy, and where you sit in your competitor set, if you can always have those metrics available to you on a quarterly basis, I would recommend no more frequent than quarterly because uh, the needle doesn't move enough. Um, but if you can have those at your fingertips on a quarterly basis, then explaining that to the board or explaining that to the rest of the C-suite, et cetera, becomes really tangible and really possible. Um, and so you can show the value of your investment. Uh, it's just not necessarily in revenue in a direct way. Uh, and so I, I do. I feel intensely passionate about the value of a brand purpose and a brand strategy that way. Um, but it can be one of the more difficult things for us to, to sell through as marketers inside of a company, uh, mostly because it is not direct. It doesn't have that direct benefit. Um, but gosh, when you are in a crisis or when you are trying to beat out your competitors, et cetera, in terms of awareness, it matters and it matters a lot. And of course, it's it's baked into Koala, really. Like the the brand was born with that, uh, mm-hmm. but for other brands, it's not. Especially brands that have been around for a, a long, long time, and they're, you know, some are very easily aligning themselves with with great purpose and, and yep. great uh, initiatives, and others have struggled. Um, do you think there's too much of a, a bit of a mad rush to align with different, um, I guess, a, a initiatives without, without the thought that needs to go into it? I do. Um, and I think one of the best examples is the month that we are in now. Now, I'm jealous of Australia because Australia basically gets two Pride Months a year, yep. um, whereas the rest of the world gets one. Um, and it seems a little bit unfair because you all have Mardi Gras um, in uh, in what is my spring, but in your summer, oh, uh, hey, that had to be toned down a bit with coronavirus. It, it did indeed, but we y'all still had a party. You, you still made it happen. Um, so, and we were a part of it, and it was a, a beautiful experience. But um, during Pride Month, I, I never think it's more prevalent than during an acknowledgement month, right? So, whether that is Pride Month or in the states, Black History Month or that kind of thing, when brands do what I what is currently called rainbow washing. Um, and it's the idea of, oh, we'll just turn our logo rainbow and we'll make a $10,000 donation to a, a queer organization in one way or another. Um, it is pandering and there's nothing authentic about it because if you don't support that community, whatever that community is, but if you don't support them the other 11 months of the year, there's nothing genuine about what you're doing in June. And so I find it very funny. I I have used the phrase before. um, It turns out that my wallet works the other 11 months of the year as well as a queer consumer. Like I also spend money outside of the month of June. Um, Fancy that. Right? So weird. Um, And so this is where we, we come down to representation. The idea that there is a mad dash 
to adhere your brand to a cause, to a belief, to a an effort in one way or another. But if you do not have representation in your company that is connected to that particular community or cause, you're going to mess it up. You absolutely are going to mess it up. And so if, you know, for the companies that are running a pride campaign right now, was there a queer person involved in, in, in what that is for your brand? And if the answer is no, turn it off right now, stop spending money on it immediately and get people involved because you don't have enough representation in your team and you're not paying attention the other 11 months of the year. And so I think, you know, I, I guess I sort of took your question a little bit sideways, but when a brand is trying to connect with a belief system and a purpose, you've got to make sure that it is authentically connected to the representation of your workforce and who is involved and how you are creating that particular connection. Otherwise, not only will it fail, it will likely create a crisis for your brand. Look, I was actually going to bring it in that direction anyway, because the timing was, uh, of course, uh, spot on. <laughs> Yes, <laughs> uh, and we've been yeah, look, we've been seeing a, a, a lot of different campaigns in, in market. Um, mm -hmm. in, in the the term you used before, completely relevant in in terms of rainbow washing, depending of course on the brand. Some are very, yep. um, you know, I guess honest in what they're doing, and, and others Absolutely. not necessarily. Um, and you know, we've seen a number of examples where the intent has not uh, followed through to mm. to real purpose and, and real meaning um so it's very interesting that that you've you've brought that up a, a, as an example uh, I, I just wanted to finish up uh peter on uh, i guess going all the way back to the start almost uh you know we'll, we'll wrap it up in a neat little circle sure you're still in the u.s uh obviously you're trying to to get to australia at, at some stage uh sort of a, a two-part question uh when are you hoping to be in Australia? And then part two would be, if you're not coming anytime soon, does that mean we may see a, a US storefront for Koala? <laughs> Look at you digging for the headline. Okay. Um, so listen, I, I, I can't comment on anything as far as a, a US storefront. Um, I will say that Koala is very focused on our continued expansion. Um, so you will see announcements in the future about our next countries and where we're going to operate. There's a lot of opportunity out of the, in the world. And um, it, honestly, it's an um, embarrassment of riches trying to figure out where to go next and what it's going to look like. Um, but I, I can't make any announcements <clears throat> as far as the US is concerned. In terms of my arrival on the Australian shores, I don't know yet. Um, I don't, I, at this point, I don't even have a target date. Um, there is, uh, you know, the prime minister and the government have, have made the announcement around middle of 2022 um, as the idea when perhaps the border, perhaps the borders will open up a little bit more depending on where we all stand with vaccinations, et cetera. So I'm along for the ride um, and just have to wait and see exactly when uh, I'll be able to get on a plane and go. Well, Peter, I, I, Genuinely hope that that's sooner rather than later. It's a great shame that uh, you weren't able to make it over for Mumbrella 360, but we'll hold that spot uh, open for you when for next year you, when you are in market. Uh, thank you very but, much, so, Damon. I really appreciate it, and thank you again for the invitation to this and um, to Mumbrella 360. I wish you a lot of luck with the conference. I'm confident it will be fantastic. Thank you so much, Peter. We, we really do appreciate your time and wishing you, of course, and Koala the best of luck in the future.
Thank you so much, Damien. That was Peter Sloterdijk, Chief Marketing and Technology Officer for Koala. Stay tuned for the Thursday episode of the Mumbrella Cast, where the team will analyze the latest news in media and marketing, and Mumbrella Managing Editor Olivia Crimmel will speak with Pure Profile CEO Martin Phils. I'm Damien Francis. Thanks for listening. Thank you.